0: G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings.
1: G'day dad, how are you doing today?
0: Good thanks Rowan and
1: good to be here with you on a
0: topic which we maybe relate to a bit more than most. Yeah, I must admit I'm a little more, oh, I don't know if apprehensive the word before this podcast today dad, but it is one that... As we say, both you and I have related to a little bit, so we'll see what comes up on today's episode. We might be uh, slightly more divulgent than uh, other episodes that we've done, but it'll uh, be interesting to see anyway. It's a very good topic that we are getting into, and we've called today's episode Curbing Unrelenting Standards. So, Dad, just a bit of an overview at first. What are we going to be talking about today? Okay, well, following on from the recent weeks where we
1: talked about schema therapy We're talking about particular personality patterns that could get in the way of people's achievement or enjoyment of life or finding a balance in life. And the final schema we haven't covered is unrelenting standards. So as people would be aware from the recent podcasts, we're talking about also life traps, things that can trip us up. And unrelenting standards, as the term sounds, it's
0: largely about perfectionism. And I believe that this is one of the schemers most linked with depression and anxiety can you just talk about how the schema relates to maybe depression and anxiety and and maybe the prominence of depression and anxiety in people's life who suffer with this schema okay well
1: to get an idea of how it relates to depression and anxiety it helps to look at the key features of this schema as jeff young highlighted who developed schema therapy so it starts from putting pressure on ourselves from expectations, like expectations of ourselves, of very high standards. So we tend to be hypercritical of ourselves, very self critical of ourselves, and maybe of other people. That's the perfectionism. It tends to involve having quite rigid rules, like using the word should. We should be able to handle this like this. Maybe they should do that. I should be able to do this. These self imposed standards that get rigid and often there's a preoccupation with performance around time and efficiency. So people are feeling pressured time-wise, pressured to achieve. Now, if we've got those kind of tendencies, then we can see how we're looking at things through a demanding and critical lens, if you like, and that's where we're more likely to be prone to depression because we're more likely to fall short of expectations, and that's part of what depression can be a feeling of a a lack or a loss or missing out on something and so if we set the standards very high of what we expect of ourselves we're more likely to fall short and also the ongoing stress of putting a lot of pressure on ourselves that can also lead to burnout or depression in other ways and we can also imagine with anxiety especially around performance anxiety if we've got these really high perfectionistic standards to perform then we're going to feel more pressured and stressed with the things that we do. And also it can get out of balance with maybe putting too much time into certain achievement tasks or work and missing out on maybe social enjoyment or leisure or other kind of things that help make life worthwhile. And it also can relate to, say, obsessional tendencies. So even if we think of obsessive-compulsive behaviour, sometimes that's from putting a rigid expectation on ourselves Around it might be expectations of cleanliness or some other kind of standard of having things in order in a certain way. There's a degree of perfectionism and this feeling of should this high internal expectation
0: in obsessional kind of states as well. And it is an interesting one because, you know, as we said, You and I both relate to this and I've particularly noticed over the last little while I suppose how I do relate to some of this so it's potentially something that's going to come up over the podcast but I imagine there's also a bit of a balance to be had with this too like all of the schemas that we've spoken about like I've heard that saying before. What is it? Something like, you know, aim for the stars and you'll land for the moon. So basically, this notion of, well, if you, you know, shoot for higher and higher goals, well, it's likely that you'll get some way towards it and end up in a more progressed situation than you would be having not gone for those goals. So, what are some of the signs that someone's dealing with an unrelenting standard schema, maybe as opposed to? Just wanting to achieve and and maybe having higher standards for what they do, but looking at what actually the schema of unrelenting standards is. Yes, well, look, that's a really good point that you
1: make as well, because like many things in our mental health and our makeup and how we go about things that can get out of balance, there's a point behind it in the first place. Like even when we talked in previous podcasts about things like mistrust schemas, like Sometimes people have had the experience early in life of being mistreated where it makes sense to be mistrustful of others. It's just that it can go too far. And the same thing, just say, with anything around achievement or even perfectionism, striving can be a good thing. Thinking what's important to us and looking to do our best in certain kind of areas, that can be really helpful. It's just that it can get out of balance And it's when we notice it getting out of balance again and again and again. So it leads to, for example, repeated experiences of burnout or depression, and we'll talk about some examples later on, or persistent anxiety. That's where there's more than a clue that it's getting out of hand and where it really helps to identify the pattern itself. It really helps to identify the unrelenting standards or the perfectionism and the rigid kind of expectations that go behind it because then we can maybe function better and feel better so where we can get into trouble and people might recognize these patterns is if people are often feeling time pressured and even exhausted because they're pushing themselves so hard taking on so much people might notice that they're being very critical of themselves often in their self-talk their inner critic is really overactive and partly because of the standards it's expecting of the person, and maybe the word should often be in the background. Oh, I should have done better with this, or I should you know keep on pushing myself with that that kind of thing. It also can be being critical of other people. But another example is if we get caught up in being over competitive, we might be getting feedback from other people in whatever way that we're coming across as being a bit competitive that way and so something's getting out of balance in terms of the standards that we're looking to apply and the thing with this is it often goes with limited insight into the patterns and how oppressive they might be like often people aren't aware of how unrealistically high their standards are or rigid their standards are. So people might think, oh, well, I'm not a perfectionist because I don't aim for 100% all the time. But there again, if people are aiming for, say, 90% all the time or they're not giving themselves periods of time out or they're not making extra allowances for even sometimes silly mistakes because they are tired or weren't concentrating so well for whatever reason, we don't have to be 100% applying ourselves to anything to be a perfectionist It's just, it's getting it out of balance and
0: being overly rigid with it in a way that becomes oppressive to ourselves. And that's really interesting, that lack of insight aspect, because something I'd probably relate to a little bit, and I've got a little bit of a story that might come up a little bit later on just about how, I suppose, it shows up in terms of not having insight, and then you kind of almost have a bit of a realisation about it. But it's interesting as you describe that there, because... In some ways, like, I think our society almost pushes some elements of that. Like, for example, when I catch up with friends and, you know, you always say, oh, how you been? You know, what have you been up to? Myself included, but to a T, nearly everyone always says, you know, I've been really busy, like, there's been a lot on with work, working hard at the moment, all this sort of stuff. There's almost this perceived pressure in a way to, you know, really be applying yourself in a way, you know, there's many good things about that. Like, a lot of my friends are quite high achievers and all this sort of thing. And so... I think, you know, they are busier. I don't think they're necessarily lying. But I, I find it interesting that just about everyone that you talk to, you say, oh, how are you going? It's, yeah, you know, had a lot on, been busy. There's very few people who sort of say, oh, you know, I'm managing my recreation and work life really well. It's almost like there's this kind of pressure in a little way to at least be perceived to, to be pushing yourself a lot. Yes, I think that's a really good point. And actually, that reminds me of going back to a 10-year school
1: reunion. And I can never remember a more competitive kind of setting, including in school reunions, than that 10-year reunion where people really comparing what they were doing with work and it sometimes can even be with family life, with many women have described that at, at a reunion around then or maybe a little bit later kind of thing, that there can be these social comparisons that are happening that can be oppressive. And when you think about it, social media itself can be oppressive that way because it's often looking to present people in their best light, and there can be a competitive aspect about that and there can be rigid standards associated with that. So it's commonly recognised these days that many people might experience more pressure on themselves because of the images that come through
0: in social media that are often a little bit idealised or a bit unrealistic. I think it's so true, and it's actually this is a, a tiny bit of an aside, but it's one thing I think people have maybe realised a little bit in terms of maybe even the younger generation of people. Like It's something that I... I don't use it much, data must me, but I went through a little while trying to get my head around TikTok. And one of the fascinating things about TikTok is people include their mistakes. So someone will have a you know, failed take to camera or whatever and they'll include it in, even though they're obviously editing the video. So it seems that maybe we've gotten on to that a little bit and hopefully things won't be quite so as unrelenting in terms of the standards for social media going forward. Yes, look, actually, I might
1: even mention that's one advantage there is to getting older. There's some things that aren't much fun about getting older, like what can happen with your body bits starting to wear out and things like that. But one of the good things is people do tend to experience a little bit less of that pressure of social comparison that can maybe add to the unrelenting standards. And it reminds me of an expression that at 20 years of age, people can be pretty concerned about what other people think of them. At 40 years of age, often people are not quite so concerned about what other people think of them. At 60 years of age, usually not only are people not quite so concerned about what other people think of them, but they realise that other people were so busy, worried about themselves at the time, they weren't thinking so much about other people in the first place.
0: Yeah, I think it's called the, is it the spotlight theory or... Oh, I'm off the top of my head here, so I shouldn't have said it, but someone's been talking about this recently. I think it's called the spotlight theory in terms of you almost feel like you, there's always a spotlight on yourself, but then you realise that actually no one you know, is really going out of their way to keep up with what you're doing unless they're you know, your friends or your family or people who are in your immediate circle that way. But, Dad, we've spoken the last couple of episodes about surrender, avoidance and overcompensation, and I wonder how that shows up for an unrelenting standard schema. Okay, now, well, if
1: people are surrendering to a schema, it's like giving into it, so it's being overly affected by the schema. So, again, if someone's surrendering to the unrelenting standard schema, they'll be feeling pressured and stressed around the demands that they have on them, wondering if they're doing it well enough. And one of the main ways that comes up in clinical settings, in therapy settings, is with burnout. People might be very resourceful, they might be very capable, but they're pushing themselves so hard that they're getting more and more stressed and sometimes this then overlaps with a range of anxiety symptoms. It can impact on people's concentration, sleep, irritability and if it keeps on going, it tends to lead to burnout and in turn with depression. And it also can be when people are being very critical of themselves, very self-critical. There might be that inner critic voice that's very loud or frequent in their own mind, a feeling that they're just not doing things well enough they should be going better than they are and being preoccupied about the demands that they have, have on them. So I mentioned before that I've had experiences of, of depression in the past that I recognise partly related to that and particularly I can think of a time as a student when I was really struggling around 20 years of age, my mother was nearly killed in a car accident, I just split up with a girlfriend, it was around the time of exams And previously, I hadn't had so much problems with perfectionism with exams, but at this stage, with the extra stresses, I was really worried about whether I was going to fail. And so with that, I had more and more pressure on myself. I'd start to write the first sentence of an essay. I'd cross it out, and then I'd start writing it again. I'd write a short paragraph. I'd think, that's lousy, that's no good. I'd cross it out, look to start writing again. I was putting off doing things with friends. I was just preoccupied with looking to do this particular assignment that I thought I just couldn't do well enough. I'd get stressed, I'd go for a walk, I'd actually start picking leaves off trees and tearing them into little tiny bits of my hands as I walked along really stressed and that was as things were developing further and these other things happening as well, that led on to like a, a real depression for a period of time, where I'd wake up in a sweat in the middle of the night, think I wasn't going to pass the course, even though objectively I'd had very good marks before. That that was an example of again surrendering to the schema. All this self criticism I had of oh, I thought I should be doing so much better than I was, and the standard just wasn't you know good enough. That
0: was a real surrendering to the schema. Well, it's interesting hearing you describe that. There, because like we've obviously spoken a little bit about this before and obviously it's something that that you've always dealt with in terms of those unrelenting standards. But what's interesting to me there is that there seemed to almost be this event which caused insight for you in terms of uh, you maybe didn't realise that there were these unrelenting standards bubbling away in the background, if that makes sense. And it was only through going through that period where it was really evident and obvious to you how... I suppose, harsh some of those expectations were at that time that you even realised the depth of it. And oh, that's something I relate to a little bit where I had this experience uh, a little while ago where I was editing a podcast for someone or a, a client of mine. And basically, this podcast, there was a lot of editing in it. Let's just say that, Dad. And uh, basically, it was a, a two-hour recording, so you know, a fairly long podcast. And I ended up spending about 24 hours on this podcast edit which you know probably should have taken somewhere between four and six and for me it was just I just couldn't deal with not having it basically perfect in my mind and it was only through going through that experience of sitting there over the course of say two weeks where you're taking just about every spare hour or two hour block that you have and putting it into doing this extra work on this podcast that I kind of realized hold on you know going forward this isn't the way that I can really go about things. And so it strikes me that it was maybe a little bit more of a marked realization for you in terms of uh, when you were going through that situation, realize that there were very unrelenting standards. And that probably gave you insight a little bit into other situations where you'd maybe applied a similar line of thinking or a similar thought pattern which related to these standards which were lying underneath. But certainly for surrender, it's definitely something I can relate to. But Also, that aspect of maybe not realising that the standards were, I suppose, maybe causing you harm in some way or, or causing you some sort of issues, it's not until you really go through a situation or event where that really comes to the fore and almost causes you distress in a way that it strikes me, it's only in that situation where it would come up really for someone because otherwise it's just, you know, how you go about things. Yes, and I'll mention for one that I'm
1: very happy that you've got very good standards with editing and you make us sound really fluent and articulate in these podcasts and I suppose we're reasonably articulate, but I'll tell you what, it sounds a lot better coming out sometimes than it goes in because of your editing, but that's a great example that you're mentioning of going overboard. Like as you say, if it's 24 hours rather than more like say four or six hours, something like that, well it just becomes too oppressive and there's the time pressure and presumably you're missing out on other things that might be leisure or catching up with friends or doing other kind of work or having other ways of generating income even so as far as that goes there are these downsides from going overboard and it's recognizing that and um, the way these schemas work though is well it can still be in the background and I had it come up 10 years later on when I was admitted to hospital with depression and part of it was, well, a very difficult and stressful circumstance in the place where I worked. There was a lot of hospital politics going on that really contributed to this, but a lot of pressures built up to the point where I wasn't able to concentrate so well, perform so well, and when I became depressed and especially when I was admitted to hospital with depression boy did my unrelenting standards come up then. I was absolutely tearing strips off myself at that particular time and it was the self-critical side of things that got so out of hand and I would thought I'd dealt with a lot of the, well, perfectionism after that earlier experience of depression and for many years I had the 10 years in between but this is how schemas can work as well. You can be going along reasonably well but then... A set of circumstances or stresses can really bring them out in an extra kind of way. And then you notice in between maybe some of the more subtle ways, I had an unrelenting standard schema show up, but it really showed up in a big way when I was depressed. And that's what I've found with many clients who are used to being resourceful people, who are dealing with depression. Many people start tearing strips off themselves because they're depressed. They come and see a therapist and their biggest problem is not just being depressed or having an anxiety problem, they're ashamed of being depressed or they're very distressed about not managing better than they think that they should and that can be so oppressive. Once people who are seeking help for say depression or anxiety or trauma or relationship problem, once people accept that that's the circumstance they're in That's the reality and then generally looking to do the best they can at the time and take some pressure off in accepting that reality, it can go much better. So one of the most depressive types of unrelenting standards is when people are getting stuck into themselves for being depressed or anxious in the first place.
0: And I wonder how that could relate to the avoidance reaction that people can have to schemas because we've spoken about surrender there, but how does avoidance show up for people who have an unrelenting standard schema? Well, actually, one of the ways it can show up is many people
1: put off seeking help when they are going through real distress and depression. They might keep it masked and then it can become, well, in a sense, more dangerous. For example, many school principals for example, might experience an enormous amount of stress, more than the average person, you could understand that from their role, but can be at extra risk of that having an even greater impact from feeling they shouldn't be in that situation in the first place and feel they mask it. Many men put pressures on themselves that way. Many elite sports people have described later on how they were suffering for a very long time and not seeking help or acknowledging the vulnerability that they were feeling because they expected themselves to be functioning better than that. But I would say when we look at avoidance and the avoidance of a schema, so we're trying to act in ways that it doesn't show up, in a more general everyday sense, one of the ways that shows up is procrastination. Procrastination is usually stemming from people having rigid standards, rigidly high standards or unrealistic standards. So it's so hard to get started. That's what I was mentioning before, almost with starting an assignment and I'd rub it out, the sentence, and then I'd start writing again, feeling it wasn't good enough. Well, with avoidance, people might not even start the task in the first place. And I realised in retrospect too, there are a number of things where I would have something I was preparing for, it might be a talk or an assignment, and I'd leave it a bit to the last minute. That was a pattern I had a lot as a student, and so looking back I could realise, oh, that's actually an avoidance of that unrelenting standards schema, procrastinating, or it could be other people not taking on a promotion or job roles or an opportunity that would be very worthwhile to take on. But they're fearful that they might not be good enough because they're measuring against this
0: harsh standard. That's more an example of avoidance. And that's an example that I find really interesting because, like, if we think of avoidance broadly as avoiding a situation that's going to activate the schema. There's a, a really fascinating situation that I'm very interested in that I wonder if it is a bit of avoidance and that's Mike Tyson, the boxer. And I heard an interview with Teddy Atlas who's a boxing trainer who was actually one of Mike Tyson's trainers throughout his career and he basically had this line about Mike Tyson only got in four fights his whole career and lost them all. And you sort of go, what, what are you talking about? He obviously got in way more than those. And he was saying that basically... Mike Tyson was such a good boxer that it was only four times throughout his career that he was evenly matched. And in all those situations, he never gave a full account of himself in terms of, you know, just applying himself. And one of the times that's really interesting with that aspect is when he bit off Evander Holyfield's ear, which is apparently one of those times where he was up against an evenly matched opponent and it looked like Mike wasn't going to win that boxing fight. And so it was almost as if the act of biting off the ear, which of course you're going to end the boxing fight, it was almost a way to avoid this almost true account of how we'd go in a fair boxing match and it seems to me that well based on what you know teddy atlas who's someone who'd know a lot more than i would about mike tyson based on what he said mike tyson was basically doing everything that he could to avoid being in this situation where he was going to have to measure up in some way like obviously he'd had so much experience beating up on people who are you know worse than him technically but it was in those situations where he was called upon to basically get the best out of himself. He always found a way not to go through with the fight and biting off of Holyfield's ear, which just think, what a crazy thing to do. But in this context, you can almost kind of go, Well, yeah, actually you could see that was how someone, you know, completely kind of valued their identity in a way, and it looked like, you know, they were gonna be shown up and not end up looking as good as they thought they would. Well, You can see how someone would basically do everything they could to get out of that situation, which, as crazy as it is, was to bite off a guy's ear. It's just absolutely wild that that would happen. That is an amazing example, and yes, an insightful
1: example of avoidance likely related to unrelenting standards and these rigid expectations, and it reminds me of an example we've described before in terms of a failure schema. This is how people's bodies and mind can work in an unconscious way a fellow who described to me that he realised he didn't just have a fear of failure but a fear of success. I asked him what he meant and he described a couple of experiences he'd had when he got promoted and his employment history was very checkered but at one stage he was working in a particular factory with chemicals and he got promoted to supervise other people. And just at the time he got promoted he developed an allergy medically confirmed to the chemicals he was exposed to so he had to leave that particular place of work so in other words rather than face the situation of whether he would measure up in terms of a standard for being a supervisor his mind and body conjured this way of getting out of the situation and he had a second job where he was also promoted to supervise other people And I forgot what the job was, but it was a funny kind of job where you actually had to have 20-20 vision without glasses, without any kind of aid. And just at the time he was promoted, he developed this visual defect, again assessed by an optometrist, confirmed that way, that meant he had to leave that job as well. So in a way, his mind and body conjured this way. He was no longer in the situation where he had to measure up to whatever standard he was expecting of himself, or others might have been expecting in terms of him being able to be a supervisor. So it can happen in unconscious ways as well. So we might as well be aware of what we can be conscious of because this can be a way of sabotaging ourselves. And that fellow described in his experience around this fear of failure kind of thing as well, he said, it's like I'm the pilot of a plane, and it's like people are at the back, someone's at the back fiddling with the rudders. So he didn't have that kind of control. So It's often not quite as hidden or as unconscious as that. But the thing with schema is it can get under our guard. It can be so much part of our ways of reacting that we can lose sight of it. And that's where a key part of this podcast
0: episode is about bringing it to the fore. That's a a super complex reaction, which I suppose illustrates how complex some of these reactions can be. But overcompensation, Dad, how does overcompensation show up for unrelenting standards?
1: Well one of the main ways it could show up would be if people are just in a sense not trying hard or really not putting in much effort at all and to themselves they might be pretending as though they don't care so much but it might have been something important or worthwhile to them but in a way they're acting as though the schema doesn't apply so in other words it's reacting the opposite of the schema when in fact it's still motivated by it so underneath it all they're wanting so much to do well and feeling an underlying pressure to deal with it but they're really going the other way so it's not like they don't try the task at all or don't take the work on at all but they act in a way as though they really don't care and their performance is quite poor But look, I'll give a couple of other personal examples because when I recognised this schema in myself, I started to notice more how it was showing up. One example is the first time I ever presented a paper at an international conference. I was certainly consciously feeling pretty stressed about it as it led up to the time, so that's like surrendering to the schema, feeling anxious about it in a certain way. But what happened is I prepared a fair bit for this presentation and it was about my work with war veterans and trauma reactions and so it was important for me to present to peers. It was in Melbourne, this particular conference, I wanted to do well. But what happened is I wasn't fully prepared the day before and there was a conference dinner the evening before. And at the conference dinner I met someone who I knew as a researcher that I really wanted to meet. And he was actually quite a fun guy. So I thought, well, actually, yeah, we might catch up a little bit after the main conference dinner. And he was happy to catch up for a drink. I'm not sure if he suggested that or I did or a few of us did. But anyway, afterwards, we kicked on a bit. We didn't only kick on a bit. We kicked on until about 3 o'clock in the morning, which is not something which makes much sense just before you present at an international conference, maybe about 11 o'clock the next day. I got back to the hotel realised I was only going to be able to get a few hours sleep and I had to get up about six or seven in the morning and then work on the final preparations, including the slides, to present. Now, when I presented, I would have been almost in a mildly dissociated state, almost a bit of a daze kind of thing, also not having had much sleep. And it got by okay, but I didn't really enjoy it very much. And in the background, I think what I'd done is I'd kind of, in a sense... Overcompensated for my anxiety i was pretending as though it didn't bother me as much but i was almost setting up this situation where well i couldn't do much worse than that like i'd set up the circumstances where it's difficult for me to do a really good job i was almost making an excuse for myself if it didn't go so well and pretending that i didn't care so much so fortunately the feedback was quite favorable but it wasn't enjoyable at all it was really well obviously quite a silly thing to do well,
0: that's an interesting example i noticed that i never heard about that example when i was at university dad that's funny <laughs> that uh, that's only come up in more recent times it wasn't the best form of modeling was it as a parent <laughs> well maybe not but at the same time it seems that you got the job done anyway so i wonder if there's maybe any more examples that you have i believe that you're talking about one before that you wanted to mention as well
1: Yes well there was another example of overcompensation. I must admit this one did have a bit of a payoff. After I'd been through that depression around 1990 I thought well I wanted to build up my confidence further in my career and also build up more of a network of support in certain ways so I thought well I'll go back and do a clinical master's degree. And so that was in the early 90s but I knew that there was a risk If I started this course, I might put undue pressure on myself as I'd finished off my undergraduate degree when I was, you know, again, starting assignments and crossing things out and being too perfectionistic. I'd started off with more balance in that course, but by the end I had that problem and I thought, well, I don't want to go through the equivalent of a two-year full-time master's course and have that problem again. But what I did for the first assignment that was due... I was confident with this essay topic. It was about something I'd worked with in therapy for about 10 years in cognitive behavioural therapy, but by the same token, I had to spend probably about six hours on an assignment to get something done. And I thought, well, if I spent this particular weekend before handing in my first assignment, I could spend 30 hours on that assignment. I could maybe have this pressure on, maybe I wouldn't, but I didn't want to get caught up in being too perfectionistic. So what I did is I invited... A group of friends down. Well, your mum and I invited a group of friends down for the weekend. The weekend, in a sense, I should have been writing this assignment. It was due on the Monday morning. Now, friends came down for what we called Geelong Spring Getaways. We gave them an option of one of four different packages they could have as visitors to Geelong from Melbourne. And we were going to have this Geelong Spring Getaway and going along the Bellarine Highway and different things like this. And we had just such a fun time. Again, had songs as we went along. So we were singing Bellarine Highway to the tune of. Frank Sinatra's my way. Just having a whole hoot of a time. Anyway, say goodbye to them all. It's about seven o'clock on the Sunday evening and I have to start writing this assignment. I hadn't even started. And so I knew I'd only have till about, say, three o'clock the next morning and I'd need to go to bed. i need to hand it in. And so it was a bit of a wacky way of doing things, but that was a heavy-duty way of restricting the amount of time I had on an assignment. And I thought, well, I mightn't get a great mark for that. But if I could accept that and start off just doing, I suppose, something that's good enough. So it would have been far more sensible to have the weekend set aside and just do something good enough that way. But funnily enough, that time it did work a bit because I had lots of fun with friends, started off, got quite a decent mark, not a top mark for it. But I thought, well, at least I've started off not with a pattern of perfectionism too much. And fortunately after that I was more sensible. I didn't need to use that approach so much. I thought, well, if I can do well enough with just allowing a certain number of hours, I learnt more to contain the time that I'd spend on a certain task and generally do well enough. So I really had a different approach to going right through that course. And to tell you the truth, my marks didn't suffer I would have spent twice as much time or three times as much time otherwise and it really wouldn't have made much difference. So funnily enough, that was just something I used as a bit of a strategy to curb something which I knew could get out of control.
0: That's a a very interesting strategy, one that's potentially not advisable for any of the maybe master's students out there or psychology students who might be listening to this podcast. They might be far far more sensible than me, I think, Rowan, but yes. Absolutely, I think that's potentially the case in this situation, but it's interesting those stories about overcompensation because what strikes me is on the surface it could be hard to relate those examples with unrelenting standards at all in terms of you know you're acting as if the opposite is true and and what i wonder is in therapy is it most often the case where people present with for example surrender and avoidance in terms of unrelenting standards because it seems a little bit maybe more complicated with overcompensation even to ascertain that unrelenting standards are involved in the first place Yes, look, I think that's the case. It's
1: more often the more obvious pattern of perfectionism that comes up than that more complicated pattern I describe. Like the more complicated patterns might be if people are making uncommonly frequent mistakes and you think, look, why might this be when in fact there are people who do have high standards and it doesn't kind of add up and then later on you might think of overcompensation, but more often what you see is people feeling stressed about the standards they're putting on themselves and one of the things that comes to mind that way to me is some of the most stressed and distressed clients I've seen, some of the most severe depression have been elite sports people and especially AFL footballers because you can imagine actually to get there in the first place people actually have to have very high standards to be so competitively successful they get selected in an AFL team. But if people have been very successful, they're used to those high standards and then, for example, become injured or can't perform at the same level they usually have, then it can really kick in in a harsh way and it can show up as with some people, a severe depression. And I know a number of AFL footballers have declared that over the years, that they have gone through a severe depression or they played through their career with minimal enjoyment. I can think of someone who said they actually enjoyed their career more in their last couple of years when they weren't anywhere near their best form. They were getting older because they had a better handle on this side of things. So that can be a harshness that comes across with the perfectionism, which is more often in a therapy setting. And I'll give a couple of other examples of how it came up where there might have been a somewhat complicated pattern but it was more obvious like the surrender if you like where the person was acting consistent with their schema. One fellow I saw severely depressed many years ago yet he'd been a very successful insurance salesman and I asked him why do you think that you've become depressed? He said well each year I know how much insurance I sell My father always told me as a businessman if you don't generate more revenue each year then you're going backwards. If you're not going forwards then you're going backwards. He said look, yes I've sold more insurance in a way than the previous year but it didn't keep up with inflation. Therefore I'm going backwards, therefore I'm failing. If you're not going forward you're going backwards. So he felt he was failing by this rigid view of the standard set related to something his father had said. If you're not always moving ahead, you're moving back. Well, that would have been very difficult for people if they had that view, if they had to adjust their work situation through COVID or, again, if a footballer becomes injured or a sports person becomes injured, if someone's used to performing at a high level and then there's stress in their family or a loss and they can't concentrate as well or perform as well, people can have a catastrophic reaction... That's another way it can come up. And a final example I'll mention is one young mum. Again, many years ago, she was hospitalised and I asked her a little bit more about her reactions and she felt that she was failing as a mum of her first child, an infant. But you asked her more about how she felt that she was going and it just seemed that there were such demands and expectations she had on herself of being a mum, of being perfect in every way. And I think it is pretty tough for mums generally in terms of some of the idealistic expectations there can be especially of a first child, parenting a first child and well certainly mothers, fathers, you know, parents generally but certainly with that particular mum she was really feeling that pressure but when she made the tweak from thinking that she had to do things 100% well to then recognising that maybe if she did things only 90% well And there's a way that she could appreciate maybe what that meant, not having to be perfect in every way. Once she made that bit of an adjustment in her thinking, she started recovering very quickly. That's a simplified way of putting it. But that's often how it goes when people have become depressed or very distressed around these excessively high standards. If people can recognise how oppressive the standards are and can wind them back a bit and start thinking of what's good enough, that's how people can
0: help recover from depression. What strikes me about that is that good enough for someone with unrelenting standards is probably going to be quite high standards anyway. So, like, I'd really relate to that aspect of like, I've got a lot of benefit, I guess, out of recognizing that I need to maybe pull it back a little bit and realize what good enough is. And I think one of the things that It's maybe slow to realise, but I am realising over time, is that my 80% is still going to be relatively highly unrelenting standards. Like it's not as if you can completely forget who you are and just drop every sense of it. But it seems that with her it was more about maybe finding a more functional way forward rather than getting rid of the high standards altogether because they're still going to be influential even if it's 80% of the best thing that you could do. Yes,
1: I think that what you're highlighting there is it's so much about our perception, our perception of what's good enough. And look, I'll mention with this one of the most useful resources I know in this area because it's about recognising our thinking and in the first instance being prepared to question our thinking or change our thinking. One of the most useful resources is a book called The Pursuit of Perfect by Tal Ben-Shahar. So Tal Ben-Shahar is one of the leading figures in the positive psychology field and I think his main contribution was a wonderful contribution looking at perfectionism and so therefore unrelenting standards. So he contrasted the idea of perfectionism with optimalism. Optimalism is still that you aim high. But you look to aim realistically high. You can still strive for achievement in a certain way. If your goals are worthwhile, there's nothing wrong with aiming high. It's just looking to be realistic about it. So we're trying to find a balance between our high hopes and reality. And I'll mention that Tal Ben-Shahar has lots of really helpful principles that he conveys. It was from him I learnt the expression, learn to fail or fail to learn. So as he describes, when people are optimalists, so to speak, looking to do the optimum rather than the perfect, is you can see failures as experiences that are worthwhile forms of learning. You're not expecting to achieve all the time because that's not realistic. In the world, failure or things not working out the way we intend is part of life. And so if we're open to learning from that, that's a very rich source of progress. So part of it is around getting this balance, still aiming high, but without being rigid about it, without just having these
0: harsh expectations of doing 100% all the time. Absolutely. And I think he was a former elite squash player as well, Telbencher. So I must admit when I read that, I certainly related to maybe the elite sport aspect of it, Dad, which I, I thought was fascinating that he basically applied these principles to his own sports career and beyond it. But... I wonder how do unrelenting standards develop, Dad? Because there's obviously going to be many people who have high standards and who are striving to achieve in a whole range of areas. But if we look at particularly unrelenting standards and maybe some of the issues that can come with the schema, how do they develop? Okay, now this is where I'm going to feel a little bit sheepish bringing up this
1: one because one of the main patterns that they develop is where one parent was either demanding or thought very highly of achievement. And I can't help but think, for example, in our family or even if you relate to that, look, funny enough, it's something that I was really conscious as a father, for example, when you were in early secondary school or whatever, I didn't want to put those expectations across because I knew how restrictive they'd been for me or how they'd contributed to a couple of depressions. And so... I know that I was actually conscious of trying not to put expectations on you. So I can actually remember one time you would have been about year eight and I was looking to pull you up on something because you were doing a school assignment and you were looking at your laptop and you had another computer on. There might have been a TV going on somewhere. I'm saying, Rowan, how can you possibly do any good on your homework if you've got all this stuff going on? You came back, I presume it was true, you came back and you said, hey, Dad, I got 19 out of 20 for that assignment. It was about fast rail or trains or something like that kind of thing from memory. But I thought, ooh, you know, maybe I need to pull my head in a little bit. And funnily enough, even though consciously I would have felt that I was pulling back on conveying something that way, I can't help but think that indirectly that I may have contributed in some ways implicitly having certain kinds of, I suppose, approach to work and also when I mentioned about going back to doing study and things like that, when I would have been still working a lot in the hospital system, starting a private practice, there would have been times when you were little when I was working about 60, 65 hours a week, which was the only way I could see of doing further study, establishing a separate private practice, keeping other kind of hospital work going and, well, look, Let's face it, there's something a bit unbalanced about that, even if it leads to many good things down the track, and I think that's where, you know, if I look back and think about how it'd gone about things, I think I could have tempered that kind of more relentless way of kind of working, which I think could have had some kind of at
0: least indirect impact um, for you that way. That's an interesting one. I must admit, I, I don't exactly remember the assignment itself, Dad, but... I, must admit, I think that was maybe more a reflection on Mr. McCallum's science class in Year <laughs> 8 than it probably was my uh, approach to school and homework, because it wasn't probably the most interesting or demanding class that I can remember throughout school, but... Apologies to Mr. McCallum, <laughs> the, Yeah, I might let that one uh, go through to the key for Dad, but... Uh, you but might was, edit it out, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how we go. If you're listening to that one, then I maybe wasn't feeling the most favourable on the day, but... So we talked about unrelenting standards from a a parent maybe being one example but I wonder if there are any other ways maybe just to let you off the hook for a bit are there any other ways that an unrelenting standard schema could develop? Oh look I think more generally our wider education system a lot
1: of it is set up for competition in different ways. I think also sporting competition in schools and things like that that can be really valued or promoted as something so important and look there's a balance to be found with this as well. I think competition in school including in sports and different kind of ways I think that's actually partly a preparation for life because there are many areas for example if people are working in a career or a business and they're going for a job promotion and other people are as well let's face it that competition is a part of life and I think sometimes in our culture we almost will overcompensate the other way it's like everyone gets a prize kind of idea and we're denying at times that aspect of life that does relate to competition but in the first instance I think it often goes too far and so notions of achievement or social comparison there are lots of different kind of things including social media we mentioned earlier as an influence and I think also maybe there's a lot in western cultures that is quite competitive ...in certain kind of ways and it just seems to me there's a lot healthier balance when cultures are or subgroups or families are prizing connections, the quality of connections between people, also being ourselves... Finding the best in ourselves and being able to be individuals, which we'll talk about in our next episode on character strengths. We'll revisit that idea of finding the best in ourselves. And I think also maybe the notion of acknowledging a spiritual dimension in life, not necessarily religious, but a spiritual dimension in life, is looking at what's most important to us in terms of our values. Aiming higher in terms of our values rather than focusing on achievement competition as much. So I think a lot of it is societal and I think that's reflected a lot in our education, sporting systems,
0: range of competitive areas. Well, I tend to agree with that in many ways, Dad. But, yeah, I'd I'd certainly agree on that element. And obviously I'm speaking from a very biased perspective here. But I think we certainly can go too far with it in terms of, you know, participation trophies for 16-year-olds and all this sort of stuff. It's almost like, well, the, the realities almost have to hit at some stage. And potentially it's good to prepare people as well for that element of competition because it is so, I suppose, widespread in different parts of society. But it just strikes me that it... Really is that I suppose distress aspect that when you see someone distressed about something and about how they're applying themselves, well, that's maybe when it's a really good time to reel it in there too. But you mentioned a couple of things, and we will talk about this more in the next episode when we go uh, to character strengths. We. Been talking a little bit more about the vulnerability side of things over the last couple of episodes. And so, maybe even for my own sake, Dad, it's good to get back into the strengths because it's a slightly easier week that we have when we're looking at the more positive topics. But I wonder what people can do then if they find themselves in a situation where they recognize unrelenting standards within themselves.
1: Okay. well, the first thing is to recognise it. Again, a main theme of this podcast and highlighting schemas in the previous podcast as well. When we recognise a pattern of behaviour which might be undermining or sabotaging to us or unhelpful to us, that in itself is so helpful because then we can look to step back and then approach things in a different way. And so the main thing with this is to find a balance between our hopes and reality, still be able to have high hopes, especially for things that are important to us. So I suppose it helps to have an idea of what's important to us, and some things aren't so important. The things that aren't so important, then our notion of good enough might be you know, much more relaxed. But even for the things that are important to us, achieving at work, with our interests, maybe different roles we have, family roles, anything that we look to do well that's important to us, Again, appreciating doing that well enough. That's one thing I think that helps so much the notion with parenting. When the paediatrician Winnicott came out with the idea of good enough parenting, because that's one area where people tend to put a lot of expectations on themselves, especially first parents. And it's important to get even these important kind of aspects in perspective. And part of that, though, is also... With allowing ourselves still to aim high, allow ourselves to have you know, challenging feelings at times or to feel uncomfortable when we're striving or to have some uncertainty about whether we'll reach a goal the way we want to. That's part of what's healthy, allowing ourselves to have some discomfort or some uncomfortable feelings around that, the standard we want to reach, but looking to be a bit flexible with it a bit realistic about it, and notice whether the way we're setting standards is to help us lift in some way or whether it's working against us, whether it's causing more stress, more procrastination, maybe we're making more mistakes or we're spending way more time doing things that we need to, recognising where it's not working and then looking to pare that back, keeping things going that involve enjoyment. Enjoyment keeping time for our important relationships, having time for leisure and time with friends, other kind of important parts of our life, maybe containing the time we spend on some of the tasks that we're working at, giving ourselves only a few hours to work on a particular kind of assignment rather than let it go over 20 hours or something like that. These are some of the kind of things that can help us curb those expectations set some limits on it so we're aiming for good enough in the long run we're kind of aiming for a good enough life not a perfect life not to have to be perfect in our roles good enough and that can still include aspiring to something really worthwhile
0: heard an anecdote recently that i think relates here and it's really interesting perspective on things i think and it was i believe the american writer kurt vonnegut And basically, I believe it was at a party given by a billionaire on Shelter Island. And Kurt Vonnegut was speaking to one of his mates, Joseph Heller. And they were talking about that their host, who I believe was a hedge fund manager, had made more money in a single day than Heller had ever earned from his wildly popular novel, Catch-22, over its whole history. So Heller responded to Vonnegut, Yes, but I will have something he will never have, Enough. (laughs) <laughs> in terms of obviously the the billionaire, he would have had unrelenting standards which would have given him a whole lot of extra money. But I believe what Kurt Vonnegut's mate realised in that situation was you can keep pushing yourself and keep pushing yourself, but at the same time it's almost like if you don't have that sense of well, what, what are you pushing yourself for in the long run, well it can just be this almost never-ending conveyor belt of you're continually trying to attain the next goal and you never really get there. So I think that was a, a really interesting way of maybe having a perspective on on maybe what a good life is and and realizing what enough for him was obviously helped him immensely with his satisfaction in life i think it's a profound notion
1: of what's enough actually you know i've noticed that in the past with some people who are quite wealthy the pressures that they put on themselves sometimes see that in client settings or people have had an enormous amount of achievement they're keeping on going you think well Why do you push yourself so hard? Like, really, what's the point of that? And maybe sometimes that gives a hint of something else we've talked about before. Sometimes it can be overcompensating. And that's where, well, we see this in a therapy setting even, that sometimes people are overcompensating for what might be underneath it all, a defectiveness schema. They're trying to overly make up for this feeling of defectiveness or otherwise, they might be over-focused on approval and they've maybe become addicted to the idea of, hey, if I'm really successful or rich, I'll get all this approval for other people. And so the striving is partly built on something else happening that way. So sometimes there are deeper things that can motivate it. But if we've got an idea of what's enough, well, I believe that some of the most happy nations on earth, they're not amongst the richest countries, and yet they can really have a concept of what's enough.
0: I heard another really interesting story recently, it was Matt Damon talking about the movie Saving Private Ryan. So Steven Spielberg directed and basically I think they were doing a shot and Steven Spielberg said, you know, cut on to the next one, let's go and Matt Damon sort of said, ah oh that was a bit sloppy. Like, I thought we maybe could have done that a little bit better. Should we give it another go? And I think Steven Spielberg said something to the effect of, you know, I could spend another hour trying to get this 10% better or I could go and do another great shot. I want to go and do the shot. So it's this aspect of, like, I find famous people and, and really, I suppose, renowned high achievers are really good people to look at in these situations because often they're going through a lot of the similar thought patterns and challenges to what we're going through but they often have really good ways of even just applying a little principle they might have a little thing that they tell themselves in that situation to help through like the other one is John Rahm who's I believe still the world number one golfer but very very good golfer and he used to apparently get quite down on himself during his round and he then basically had this realization that If his body wasn't playing well, the worst thing that he could do in that situation was basically let his mind contribute to himself not playing well by continuing to get down on himself. And so he said to himself, you know, if I'm having a bad round and, you know, my body's just not quite doing exactly what I think it'll do, well, the number one thing in that situation that I can control is my attitude towards that. And so I believe he resolved with himself to, in that situation, not get down on himself, and even if he was having a a shocking round, not be so harsh on himself in certain ways and then that allowed him to basically be a much get better golfer he's had quite a a large rise over the last couple of years and I believe that that was one of the main things that he did was basically not get so down on himself so I think if we can look to people who have dealt with things like this and obviously if you're in high achieving situation like the world number one golfer or multiple academy award winning director you're probably going to have pretty high standards and so there are a couple of examples that really stood out to me of high achieving people who've been able to temper those high standards to allow themselves to still function maybe at a a more optimal level yes they're wonderful examples people who show such high mastery
1: but by pulling back a bit on expectations they could be even more productive they're great examples
0: so what can we do in a therapy setting maybe dad so like obviously we've spoken about some of the things that we can do and and, you know recognizing it is a huge part of that but what about if it comes up in therapy
1: okay now one of the things is this is where sometimes it is helpful seeing a therapist where some of the patterns especially more complex patterns that the person's not so conscious of can come to the fore but whether people are in a therapy setting or not in a therapy setting the first thing is to recognize the pattern so one of the things that i've mentioned in the past in previous episodes is how when i went through that severe depression Uh, When I was in my early 30s, I'd been a senior psychologist for five years, a psychologist for 10. I didn't realise how harsh I was being with myself. But I had a wonderful therapist to help me recognise that and partly using a two-chair technique. We recently had a podcast episode on chair work, but essentially what he did, and this is a technique that often helps in therapy with people who are perfectionistic. You look to separate out that harsh inner critic which has got a voice a bit like a punitive parent. And then there's another part that can be like a vulnerable child. And by recognizing how there's a part that's so self-critical and harsh, you're not doing well enough, you should be doing better. You know, that was pathetic. Well, how have you got in this situation? Look at these mistakes, or how you're failing in this way. And then on the other side, there can be another part that's I'm so overwhelmed, I don't know how to deal with this, I'm, I'm trying to do my best, but you know, it's not enough and I'm not getting anywhere and this is dreadful, that kind of thing. By separating out, has actually happened to me in that exercise and we use that chair work exercise where people are really caught up with this pattern, it can help the person get a more realistic appreciation of how harsh that can be. So that's a particular chair work technique and it can also help when, as we identify in therapy, other schemas that might apply, like, for example, a defectiveness schema or it might be an Approval schema, or at times it might even be an emotional deprivation schema where the person's tried to achieve and maybe make up for what they felt they missed out on by thinking they have to be just fantastic to be able to get the approval of others or the the acknowledgement of others when really there was a degree of emotional abuse in their background, for example, which fortunately I didn't experience. But there can be different things that can contribute to these kind of patterns. So recognizing that harsh, self-critical side when it's more extreme seeing some of the experiences that might have contributed to that then and that that actually helps bring out the emotions that come up the helplessness the exhaustion the feelings of that go with feelings of failure if people feel that you know they just need to keep on striving drive themselves into the ground then there need to be the cognitive and the behavioral things to change it the cognitive It's all about that notion of reflecting on how is this working for me? Is this pushing myself harder? Is this working? Am I more productive or am I more stressed? Is it taking that much more time than it need to? Am I missing out on social or leisure things or is it impacting negatively on my family relationships? And is it maybe best that I pull back a bit on this? Can I aim for 80%? or even sometimes less, because it's not that important. So it's recognising ways that we can pull back and get more balance about that. That's a key part of it. And many people find when they start pulling back on those demands in themselves, less pressure, they're feeling less anxiety, they're not so irritable or stressed, more self-accepting in different ways. I'll talk a little bit more about self-compassion shortly, but... It's having a kind of way of recognising the pattern and pulling back on those demands.
0: Well, again, what really strikes me about that is, you know, you can't forget who you are in that situation. So even if you do pull back on whatever demands you place on yourself, well, it's still relatively, it's probably going to be high enough to be able to achieve many of the things that you're setting out to achieve in the first place. And, like, I imagine many of the schemas are like this, but very much so Unrelenting Standards is internally mediated so it's not as if there's other people out there saying your standards have to be at this level quite often it's internal where you go no for me my standards are very much like this and so the thing that really stands out to me there is that maybe everyone needs to find their own way of dealing with their own set of standards yes that's a very good point how internal this is and how when
1: things are important to us we are still likely to strive. We are still likely to aim high and not just get sloppy and lazy with something if it's important. And so one of the main things that reminds me of what you're saying is having seen clients in the past who express a fear, oh, look, if I'm not so perfectionistic or if I wind back on this, I'll become really sloppy. I won't have that kind of achievement that I would have before or it just won't go so well. And what I commonly say to them, because people often don't realise this, is, By the age of 30, a lot of our personality attributes, they're not set in stone, but a lot of them are very developed. If someone's very conscientious at age 30, and also they're perfectionistic maybe, but they're very conscientious, they're basically not going to stop being conscientious. So when people pull back on the demands, they're likely still to be high-achieving anyway, and people can look at that as an experiment. And that's what I mentioned I did when I went back to do a master's degree. I pulled back on the demands and yet basically my marks were no different really from what they would have been if I spent twice as long on it. So that conscientiousness is still there. And there are times it's important to strive. Like I mentioned about spending all those hours in this practice – I'll mention I don't regret for a period of time having spent 60 65 hours going back and studying and set up a private practice and all the rest of it the qualifications were important having the autonomy and freedom of having a setting where could you know have colleagues join us here that are just wonderful to work with and have that level of choice and influence rather than some of the well more negative aspects I found of working in a wider hospital system around that time There are a lot of very positive things i found that came from that kind of striving, even though I'd learnt to do it, if you like, less perfectionistically. So basically, if we pull back, we're not going to start to become sloppy. Just focus your efforts especially. Think of the things that are most important. What's the 20% of things that are most important? Or what's the 20% of effort that's most important? in a particular work task, in our roles, in what we might do that day and put a fair bit of our effort in what's most important and just relax a bit about some of the other things that aren't quite so important because maybe good enough with some situations is even aiming at 50% or something's even not doing it. It's not that important so it really does come back a bit to priorities. Still aiming high if that's important to us but being able to moderate it.
0: And it strikes me with unrelenting standards, that aspect of enjoying something is a big part of it too. Like we've spoken about flow before and one of the elements of flow is that there are demands placed upon you. Like you're you're calling on a part of yourself, you're stretched in a particular way. So I think having high standards for things, like obviously it's very good in certain situations, there's a balance to be had, but I think there are certain situations that potentially... I'll probably speak for myself and, and say that I, I think I can enjoy it a bit more as well, Dad, because like you'd probably know this having played a bit of golf and tennis with me over the journey, but one thing that I've noticed over even, you know, probably more about talking about it this week, it's something I've sort of tried to work on over the last little while, but even thinking back over this episode, something that has become quite obvious to me is that, you know, like I absolutely love playing sport, and for example, golf is probably my favourite thing to do, but... I reckon a lot of the time, if you were to look at me on the golf course, you'd go, geez, he's having a a rough day. And I reckon there's almost this aspect of, I don't know, there might be some other golfers out there who can relate to this, and you're obviously a golfer too, maybe you can tell me if I'm barking up the wrong tree, but one of the difficult things about golf is that if you've played a certain way in a certain time, well, if you don't play as well the next time, you go, I'm just not playing as well as I can. And golf's a bloody hard game and you look at even all the pros and stuff and they make plenty of mistakes too and I think one thing that I'm maybe a little bit guilty of over the time is you know you get out onto the golf course and obviously you really enjoy it but you try to get the best out of yourself in certain situations and so you know if you make a mistake or whatever you're not maybe enjoying it as much as you could and so I think in maybe maybe a year ago dad I probably you know wouldn't visibly enjoy golf unless I was having, you know, the actual best round I've ever had, or you know, one of the best holes I've ever had, or having a good hole. Like, if I wasn't doing as well as I thought that I could, I just wouldn't enjoy it anywhere near as much. But talking about this today, and it is something that I, I probably have realized over the last little while, and I think I'm getting a little bit better with it, but you need to enjoy the things that make you so passionate as well, in terms of like. It, got to recognize that there's going to be certain things that maybe draw standards out of you in terms of there's going to be things that you really really care about and want to achieve with and so sometimes from my perspective anyway it's good to maybe step back a little bit and go hold on is the number one thing in this situation just to get the 100 best thing and obviously there's satisfaction that comes out with putting yourself forward that way but maybe it's that old cliche of, you know, you got to smell the roses and enjoy the journey and the process and all that sort of stuff. It's one thing that I, I think I actually am coming to realise with elite sports people is that they do have a way to enjoy it. So I'm an absolute hack dad. So I don't know what I'm doing getting down on myself for not performing to the level that uh, I think I maybe should. So that strikes me as maybe an element of unrelenting standards. You, you've got to enjoy certain things even if you're getting a little bit hard on yourself at times. Yes I think that partly
1: is contrasting the idea of an ideal from an expectation and it can be tricky with golf can't it because if you get that image of smacking a drive sailing right up the fairway straight or whatever and mind you I've seen you do a few of those lately too but if you have that image in mind and it's like that should be each time gosh that's a hell of a standard to compare with and it might interfere with the pleasure understandably that way but um yeah, I think that's a good example and when people have an image of how things could be and it's more than just an ideal or an aim or whatever and then starting to expect that of themselves, whether it be as a parent, whether it be as a worker or a student or a golfer, that's when we can get into trouble rather than just focusing on what's just ahead of us at the time, having a go at that and dare I say even being in the moment.
0: Well, there's that famous story of Thomas Edison where I believe he said, you know, I took 10, it's something like I took 10,000 goes to invent the light bulb. It's not as if I had 9,999 failures. I just worked out 9,999 ways not to do it. And so I think that's a, another thing actually I think is really worth mentioning in terms of in today's day and age especially you can iterate things as well in terms of you can come out with even a version of something and then work on it, you know, over time. Like maybe a university assignment slightly different where you kinda of gotta hand it in and that's the end of it. But in most situations in life that we go through, you can get something down, you know, on paper, you can you know, basically just get something on the canvas, so to speak, and then from there you can look to refine it and work on it and maybe, yeah, slightly improve it in particular ways later on rather than, I imagine, someone with unrelenting standards or maybe even myself in certain situations, Dad, you can think, you know, I've got to get this to a certain level or, you know, it's, it's not worth it unless it's at a certain level, but that's just simply not true because, as we say, you can get something out at, you know, 80% as good as you think you could do it But then over time you can further iterate and you can change little things here and there and refine it a little bit and so you could end up roughly where you would have been had you got it perfectly right in the first place. It's just taken a few little tweaks here and there on the way through. Yes, and and what
1: you've been saying there too, it reminds me we've actually got a couple of past episodes that are relevant to this theme. We have one on the pitfalls of perfectionism, but you mentioned also flow and I'm going to mention something about self-compassion. Yes, with flow, we're more likely to have those wonderful states of flow when we're immersed in the moment and there's something deeply satisfying about it. If we're drawing on some particular skill that we have, some quality or skill, some of the best in us, and we're stretching ourselves. So it's not about aiming low. It's actually about aiming high. But it's also about realistically being in the moment where we're going on feedback. One of the things about flow it's also you're taking in feedback in real time and seeing how you're going and we've talked about an example of a downhill skier describing being so much in the moment coming down the mountain kind of thing being at one with a mountain this wonderful state of mind so it's also striving all the practice that took to be able to do that but as well as being in the moment kind of thing so we can aim high for getting some of the most out of life and many of us will experience flow. Well, sometimes it will be with golf, especially when it's going well on that day, that kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, just, just generally, or with friends or laughter or, or just doing something that we really enjoy doing. So we can still aim high as part of it. But the other thing is, to put it in perspective, self-compassion we've talked about. So we have a podcast episode on flow. We also have one on self-compassion where people might recall, with self-compassion we're looking to balance out three particular well, evolutionary drives. And one is what we call the drive system, which is like achievement. Oh, I need to find food. I need to get from point A to point B. I need to achieve some kind of task around living. Then there's threat, so danger kind of thing. And it might be danger from others or external circumstances or fire. It helps us fight or flee kind of thing. And then another one is soothing. When we have unrelenting standards, too much drive and not enough soothing. And that triggers our threat system. And our threat system is basically activating anxiety, the fight and flight and freeze kind of mechanisms. So if we're experiencing anxiety and it's maybe related to the pressures that we have on us it's probably we've got an overactive drive system not enough soothing going on therefore we're experiencing the threat the anxiety in that situation it's a matter of pulling back on demands that includes aiming for the 80% or letting some things go that aren't that important that we need to do and the other thing is building up our soothing And that's where things like mindfulness, relaxation techniques, drawing on social supports, anything that actually helps us, supports us in that way, that also can help deal with the unrelenting standards.
0: And so I will just mention a couple of those episodes that you spoke about there. Like We've got episode 21 was, I believe, Drive, Soothing and Threat, Seeking a Synergy of Systems, I believe it was called. And episode 33, Pitfalls of Perfectionism and I believe even episode 14, Banishing Burnout, as well, might be relevant as well. So there's those couple of extra episodes to potentially go on with. If this is a subject that you relate to or want to find out a little bit more, then uh, we probably weren't uh, referencing the schema element of things as much during those episodes, but there's certainly a little bit in there about, say, perfectionism and, and what you can do if that is something that you're going through, but... Dad, thanks so much for chatting with me about all this today. It's going to be interesting to see how we go on the golf course over the next little while. I'll probably have to uh, hold myself to account with that of having a few more smiles off the greens. But if you're out there and and you have enjoyed this episode, as we said earlier, we've got an episode on strengths and character strengths coming up next. It's going to be nice to have a a bit more of a positive spin on things for the next episode. So subscribe to the podcast if you enjoyed today. And thanks so much, Dad. I look forward to the next one. Thank you very much, Rowan, and I'm very much looking forward
1: also to our, well, birthday game of golf coming up in the next week. So, well, that that's one milestone, and there's another milestone we passed recently, our 100 episodes. I think this might be up to about 105, and I think, well we're both putting up our hand as having had some struggles with unrelenting standards. But, hey, if we've got to 100 episodes and we're keeping on going and finding this a worthwhile kind of thing to do, well, I think that we're not going too badly in that regard.
0: Well, yeah, Dad, I certainly wasn't going to mention on the podcast, but, yeah, you mentioned a uh, particular birthday coming up and I'll tell you what, you mentioned something about turning 30 during the podcast and my uh, little radar went up at that stage about... you. Personality factors at the age of thirty, because yeah, I I am uh yeah ticking off the milestone of the the big three zero next week, so yeah, it'd be good to have a game of golf and I think a, a good time to maybe look inward at some of this sort of stuff. I think. Turning 30 is maybe a natural time when there's a few sort of existential things that come up for you, Dad. So it's been interesting over the last couple of weeks to look at maybe some of this stuff because I think it's as good a time as any to uh, get the teeth stuck in. So, no, it's been good timing for that and very much looking forward to getting back out there on the golf course next week. Hopefully a few smiles coming off the green, whether the putts drop or not. I dare say there's uh, maybe not going to be so many drop putts, but we'll see how we go anyway. They get there eventually.
1: (laughs)